season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing. Wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Maya Angelou once wrote, I believe that the most important single thing beyond discipline and creativity is daring to dare. Creating on its own, well, that's one thing. Creating something you'll give to the world, that's another. It's daring. It's risky. But in a world in which the constant content mill rewards catchy captions and trending audio, an impossible hamster wheel often rendered meaningless by its own hunger for more, 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 more. more. more, more, more. Creating something of substance with weight, well, that requires all of it. Discipline, creativity, and an LCAP-sized dose of daring. And I'll take it one step further. To dig into the often unread pages of history and pull out the meaningful stories overlooked by those who've told the tales and written the literal books, and to insert that collection into the canon, that might be the most daring of all. Particularly when it's put into the hands of a reader. Because this sort of gift allows us to understand a different perspective than the usual narrative proposes. It shines a light where former archivists have chosen not to linger. It makes all of us better. And if there's one history that most climbers think they know, it's that of Yosemite Valley. And sure, we know it, pieces of it. But these pieces alone, the most often told tales, they don't complete the story. And so in 2022, when Lauren Delaney Miller's book, Valley of Giants, Stories from Women at the Heart of Yosemite Climbing, landed on shelves, chronicling pivotal women from five eras of the most told history in climbing, Yosemite Valley, it was a gift. A gift that allows all of us the opportunity to dare. Lauren, welcome to Written in Stone. Wow, Chris, what an intro. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm psyched that you're here. I'm psyched that we were able to make this happen. You, you just returned from Mexico, so we're, and this episode goes out next Monday, so we're, <laughs> we're cutting it close, but I had to have it, so thank you. Yeah, of course. Before we get started, I have a funny question for you. Okay. I'm popping this on you. If you were assembling a three-person big wall team, yourself and two others, and you get to choose from any of the women from any era discussed in your book to form that team, who do you choose? Oh my God. That's such an interesting question. Got a big wall team. Anyone in the book? I, I considered sending you this question, but I was like, nope. <laughs> no, it's fun to think about. <laughs> Well, it's hard for me to not pick our mutual friend, Josie McKee, because I've mm. actually climbed El Cap with her, and she's got the uh, the attitude that I yeah. need. I mean, at this point, I'm many years removed from climbing El Cap, so I need someone tough to help drag me <laughs> up there Josie. on this team. Yeah, I need a Josie. And we've been up there before, and I know that she'll uh, be able to wrangle me <laughs> into it. Uh, 
And so I'll put Josie on my list. And then, man, if you could really pick anyone, it's, I have a lot of friends in this book, personal friends, but it's pretty hard to not pick Lynn Hill. <laughs> yeah, pretty tough. Not what to. an opportunity that would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was looking through your book, thinking about this question, I, I came across the photo of B Vogel. Is that her mm-hmm. name? Is that right? Mm-hmm. And standing in front of the foundry in her like blacksmithing outfit. And I was like, wow, she is hardcore. She might have to be on my team. <laughs> oh, B was super hardcore. Yeah, she was a total badass. Yeah, I, there's so many badasses in this book. It it got me really, really psyched. My my valley days are long gone, and they were very fleeting at that. But <laughs> but it got me very psyched about the valley again. Um, before you even started the book, who were the women you were most inspired by in climbing? Yeah. So before I ever, I mean, I'm from the East Coast, and so for me, Yosemite was like this far off place. I mean, I remember. Mm-hmm just hoping that I could see El Cap someday, yeah. let alone live and work in the Valley and get to climb on it myself. And so like the people I was inspired by were ones really that had written memoirs. Like I was learning about climbing through books at the library. And so I had to, like the climbing media that I had access to, I felt like was things that had gone pretty big. Like I didn't even know about climbing magazines or videos or anything. So like I remember reading first Steph Davis's book. Mm-hmm. I mean, and over and over and over again, because I was like, oh my God, she's from the East Coast like me. She went to Colorado and that's where I want to go. And then eventually made her way to the Valley. And I saw a lot of my own journey um, in hers. And then of course I'd read uh, Lynn Hill's book. And those were really like the two like big name female professional climbers that I knew of at the time, like they were my introduction to it. But I felt like more than that, I was inspired by like women that I climbed with at the gym in Mm. North Carolina, you know, because I just saw them around me. Like I started climbing with a crew of ladies and those were my climbing partners. And we were going on trips and learning how to put up top ropes, (laughs) you know, for ourselves and, you know, doing all that stuff. And I moved to Alaska after graduating college and there was a another guide there named Sarah Crozier. And she became my climbing partner and mentor and eventually was the person that I first climbed El Cap with. But yeah, I felt mostly inspired by like the women that were literally right around me because I felt like they were showing me the way. Wow. That's so cool. You you also jogged a memory in my head that I hadn't, I don't think I'd ever made this connection, but I read both Lynn Hill's book and Steph Davis's book uh, in different years, but both lying on the ground in Vitavu on rest days uh, mm. on on separate trips there. I totally had forgotten all about that. That's, that's really cool. Um, you mentioned that you worked in the Valley and spent a lot of time there. So what's that like timestamp? What were, what were the years that you were in the Valley and working on Yosar? Um, I worked on Yosar in the summers of 2018, 19, and 2020. And so I must have gone there, I would say by 2017, I was like working kind of remotely dirtbagging in a van, living in El Portel. Like 2017, I was pretty much in the Valley all year. And I must have then gone there for the first time in like the fall of 2015 or something. And then Mm -hmm. kind of did like a standard rotation of going there in the fall and going there in the spring and then going there in the fall until I was able to like kind of stick around the Sierra for almost a whole year. and then 
lived in the valley that winter, um, started spending a lot of time in Bishop too. And then kind of between those two places started doing summers in the valley on the OSAR in 2018 and winters more or less in Bishop. Mm. Total side track here, but what was the summer of 2020 like in <laughs> Yosemite? <laughs> it was so weird. I mean, it was, well, so first of all, like the park was closed. And so yeah. our season started really late. Normally a Yosar season starts May 1st. Now a lot of people go even earlier, especially as like the climbing seasons kind of shifted earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but like May 1st would have been our normal start date. And I don't think we went till June. So already you get there and it's like pretty hot. Like you've already kind of missed the prime time, but it was like weird. Like camp four was closed. Rescues were hard because we had to wear masks and it's really hard to wear a face mask and hike up the, you know, the mist trail as fast as you can. And we had all these extra precautions, but in other ways it was really cool to be in the Valley in 2020 Mm. because it felt it was a really cool opportunity. I mean, in the face of everything horrible that was going on in the world to like get to see the valley with less traffic, less visitation, more animals, like all this, yeah, camp four being quiet, getting to live there with no other campers. Like it was, it was very strange, but, um, yeah, definitely a unique opportunity. (laughs) Wow. Definitely. I hadn't thought about that. I, my first thought was just the, the absence of the people, but I didn't think about the animals would immediately start coming back into places where they don't normally go. And yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it was so cool. Uh, 2020 out of the picture, what was the culture like um, in your years in the Valley as far as like uh, women climbing and women being on Yosar? I mean, for me, I feel like women, I had always known that women were on the Yosar team. I was really brought into the fold by some of the women who were on the team Mm -hmm. before me, Josie being one of them. She introduced me to a crew of people and then Jane Jackson and Alexa Flower were there before me and they kind of came up to me and uh, like encouraged me to apply. So I felt like there was more, there's a really strong culture of women kind of recruiting and encouraging other women that are Mm -hmm. in that valley wall climbing scene to apply because it can be such an intimidating thing. And so I feel like there really is that culture of women looking out, knowing that they really want a team with as many women on it as possible and going out and like looking and trying to see who's psyched and who might be a good fit for the team. And then kind of encouraging those people to, to put in an application, but it's definitely never been even. I think when I was, most of the years I was there, there were nine people on the Valley team. And I think God, was there a year there was four? I think the most I ever had on it was three and one Mm -hmm. year, maybe just two um, women out of of eight or nine or 10 or some variation of that. So it's definitely not quite half though. There's always been women on the team. And I knew of people like Josie and Libby and all these like really badass women that had um, been on there before me. Yeah. I have to imagine that while you're there, you know, whether it's conversations up on the wall or on rest days or around the fire or whatever that you're hearing stories of other women um you know women from past generations or up and coming women or whatever and was there a moment where you felt like there are stories here that I have to collect and put together into a book Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think that actually the realization that 
there were stories that should be collected <laughs> was like pretty quick. Like I remember back in my, even on my first year talking to friends about like, wouldn't it be so cool if this book existed? Like, God, we were just, you know, swapping campfire stories all the time of all these legends of, you know, people like Mary Braun who'd, oh, did you know that when Mary was on SAR, she used to wake up and run barefoot up the, um, up the trail to half dome solo snake dike naked and be back before work. Like you'd hearing all these really cool stories. Uh, I cannot independently verify that except <laughs> hearing it from Mary, but, uh, but yeah, like we were just hearing all these things. And so I felt like it was pretty obvious to me that this book should exist. I was like, what a no brainer, you know, like I feel like our culture was ready for, you know, and really eager for a book of women's stories specifically. And the Valley is such an iconic place that to me, the book idea was a no brainer. But the thing that took a while was like convincing myself that I should do it. Sure, right. Sure. And that I like wanted to be a writer, but like, I didn't really know what it was going to take. And so, yeah, the realization that the book should exist was quick, but the, the convincing myself that I could do it and that I was like almost worthy of that calling of like mm. putting all of that together, being the one to do it. That's the thing that I feel like kind of took a while of like talking to people and convincing myself that I should actually like be the one to do this thing that I felt like was really important. Totally. It's funny you bring up Mary Braun. I, have you ever seen the film Painted Spider? No, I don't think so. It's a climbing film from the 90s. Um, I just watched it again a couple of weeks ago and I was putting together a list of all the free like 90s climbing films that are on the internet. Oh, it's so great. And there's a, a segment in the film where Mary Braun and another woman climb Astro Man. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing that for the first time and being like so infatuated with Mary Braun. Mm -hmm. I was just like, wow, she's so fucking cool. She's so fucking cool. It's really true. My first trip to the valley, uh, within like three minutes of each other, I saw Mary Braun and I saw Scotty Burke. Mm -hmm. And I was so much more like, I just want to watch Mary Braun walk by <laughs> and ignore Scotty Burke. <laughs> well, that's like what's cool about climbing. I mean, I feel like climbers say this all the time that, you know, you get to be in the same like arena as your idols. But it's yeah. really true, especially in the, in the valley where, you know, you yep. can be just walking, walking around, riding your bike, cragging at the base of El Cap or something and like see these legends like doing their thing like right in front of you. It's so cool. Totally. How did you convince yourself that you were the one who should write the book? I mean, I think I just, yeah, like one of the things that helped me was that pretty quickly I realized that if I was going to do it at all, it would have to be an anthology because writing a 80,000 like 80,000 words felt like <laughs> I'm I don't know how to do that. Like I felt, I, I felt totally unprepared to write a history myself, but I was like, well, I'm really, I'm pretty social. Like I'm really organized. And so I felt like, okay, well maybe I don't have to be the world's best writer to put a book together. If I like, if everyone writes 2000 words and you get a good handful of people to do it, then like, then all of a sudden it started to feel more possible. Like, mm -hmm. okay, well then I started thinking, okay, well, who would be my perfect, like I wrote a table of contents, like who would be my, per like what would my perfect book be? It's actually like pretty similar to what it ended up being. And I started thinking, okay, well in this like most recent generation, like I know or have a, you know, one degree of separation to most of these people. And then look back a generation to like that nineties, early two thousands, 
monkey era and being like, okay, I don't know all these people, but I definitely know people that do. And I'm sure I could get introductions to them. And then looking back, like, and then just started to put those pieces together and was like, I don't know. I, I realized I just, I had met a lot of people in the Valley and I was like, well, I bet, you know, I could go to Ken Yeager and maybe he could introduce me to some of these people. And then maybe if I had a bunch of people on board, it'd be easier to convince some of the bigger name folks to do it. And it just started to feel more like a logistical puzzle. And I think that's something that felt more attainable to me. And I think the other thing was that I realized that Mountaineers books and other like small publishers take submissions directly from authors, Mm -hmm. which is not a thing that big name publishers like Penguin Random House do. Like if you want to pitch to them, you need an agent, you need all these things that felt like way too much for me. But I was like, oh, they have a list for how to submit. And it's like a cover letter, table of contents, you know, a sample chapter. And I was like, I think I could do that. And it took me almost a year to like put that application together. But I started to like ask people like, would you write for this? Or do you have something that you'd written? And I realized, oh, a lot of people have written stories already. So it could be a combination of new things and just getting permission to use older stories. And we'd have a mix yep. of timeframes. And like it, I think I just started, yeah, ticking those boxes really slowly of like, okay, who would I need? Who's absolutely essential? And then really just asking around those people, like who okay, here's one person I want to be involved. Okay. Ask them for three other people that they know mm-hmm. that should be involved and like build that kind of list of both people that we've all heard of and people that a lot of us have not um, heard of before. Yeah. I think that's such a smart thing. You mentioned that you did that in the book and I thought, wow, that's, that's incredible because those women from 1970 were also inspired by someone and mm-hmm you know, and then those women were inspired by someone. And it's such a smart thing to get their input on who was important, because if we only look back at the history that's already been told, we're looking largely at white men's history and, you know, the way that they're telling it. So a lot of these names and people get um, forgotten or just um, become a, a little side note. So really smart way to do it. Yeah. And then you get a mix too of like people that are just absolute bone crushers, you know, and ones that maybe never climbed as hard as others, but were really important to building a community Mm -hmm. in the Valley. And I felt like happy to have some of those stories in there too, where not everyone in the book is a professional climber, you know, or climbed as hard or, you know, set records or things like that, but they were important to that community. And so in the same way that there's a lot of people not in the book who have climbed very hard in the Valley, but because they never lived there or worked there or were like felt part of the community, like are then, you know, we're not included. Yeah. You you have to have criteria for <laughs> what you're including and what you're not. You know, when I, when I started this podcast, we had a massive list of who was, you know, quote unquote, important in the 90s and and what ascents were important. And whittling that down <laughs> seemed like this Herculean task. Totally. Um, but one of the th- one of the reasons I started this is because the history's all out there. We can find it if we're digging deep enough, but there didn't seem to be a place where I could just um go to hear the story of this one thing and it's totality or or close to its totality. So having this resource where I can, you know, if I want to know about women in Yosemite from a certain era, I can go in and 
and listen to or read the words from from these women or from people who've interviewed them. And I think that's really great. My my one critique is I want more of your voice too. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting, like yeah, thinking about who tells history and then what yeah. stories get told and recorded. And I mean, it makes sense that within climbing, the things that we're often recording are first ascents, fastest ascents, first free ascents, like mm -hmm. those kind of superlative things. But I mean, it's easy to kind of overlook the second descents and the support crew and the people that, you know, did 99% of a free ascent of something, you know, and, right. and then but their name isn't the one that's like remembered for that, even though maybe their, their experiences were really instrumental to building up towards that, to that mm -hmm. thing that we do remember. Yeah. That's, I have an episode coming, uh, in a few weeks that, that I really go into the, the aspect of other people built the majority of this ascent before the person who, you know, who finally did it. Uh, got credit. And it's a similar thing with Lynn on the nose, right? There were only a few pitches left um, to free and she was the right person for the job and maybe the only person who could do it in the world at the time, you know? So it was cool that she found this place that she could go into and make the mark that she did. Um, but you're right. It's so important to tell the stories of the other people who helped build the thing. Yeah. I mean, same thing on the Salathe. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, like gotten so close other teams to, mm -hmm. to that for free ascent. And I think they've gotten like some, you know, attention for it at the time, but I feel like as history goes on, we tend to just like record those superlative ones and forget yeah. about that community behind it. Yeah, I agree. Um, can you point to any particular stories that you came across that were like, how have I not heard of this? You know, in, in this season of you know building this podcast, our final episode, our final story of the season is about a climber I had never heard of. I'd never once heard the name, and it certainly one of the most important boulders of all time. Um, and no one I've talked to has heard this person's name, hmm. and it's wild to me that history has just overlooked it. So were there stories that you were surprised by? Yeah, I think maybe more than like an individual story, I felt surprised that I didn't know that much about Mariah Craner. Mm. And I think that like if you knew her or had ever climbed with her or were climbing in the, you know, 70s and 80s in California, you would be like, oh yeah, she's the one. I mean, she was the person that was a huge inspiration to Lynn Hill, to Mari Gingri, to that whole um, crew of women and that were climbing at the time to all the stone masters. She was, you know, the first female stone master, which I think is now we kind of think of as just like the name of a generation, but at the time, like had an actual entrance exam, which was this rude Valhalla and she did its first ascent and flashed it or first female ascent and flashed it. And I don't know. She's just like such a badass. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sad to say she passed away last year and I never got to meet her in person, but it was really cool to hear some of her stories and to see like the way that other people's faces and voice like light up when you mention her because she was so inspiring to so many people. And I think like something else that I found really interesting putting all these stories together that's really exemplified by Mariah as well is that like a lot of these women had like really successful careers 
doing something unrelated <laughs> to climbing. Like they had such a go get it attitude that, yeah. that it it was in their whole lives. Like, yeah, she thinking of Mariah, right? She like co-founded Black Diamond and helped start the Access Fund and did all this great stuff for climbing. And then when she turned 50, she went back to college, got a degree in physics, became a lecturer. Wow. And like, you're just like, well, that's so cool. Like she just, <laughs> she like a lot of women in this book had like advanced degrees and really serious careers in something totally unrelated to climbing. And I thought it was really cool to see, to get to see that whole life picture and that for some, like what she means to us is what she means to climbing. But like for a lot of these women, climbing was like a small part of their whole life's journey and all of these big things that they were really proud of. Be Vogel included, right? Like sh to me as a climber, she's super inspirational. But then she left climbing and did all these other amazing things that right. are are even are may, probably even more memorable. Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring up Mariah because in the very first episode of this season, which was also about Lynn Hill and becoming the first woman to climb five fourteen, I mention Mariah, but at the time I had only read her name on paper, um, and I said it Maria, mm -hmm. and. And then throughout this season, I've talked to multiple people who've mentioned her. And I've thought about ever since I heard, actually, I think Mike Call was the first person I talked to who said her name out loud. And uh, since then, I've thought I should go back and change that <laughs> just so people know. And I haven't yet. But now that I've talked to you and you brought her up in this way, I'm absolutely going to go back and edit that part in that episode just so people who listen to it in the future get the name right. Yeah, I mean, I, I to, to be fair, also totally didn't know for a long time because it's spelled like Maria, yeah. you know, in our yeah. traditional, uh, like American pronunciation of it. But yeah, I mean, that's just a funny thing that happens when you're reading stories too. Like with Mari, like I had no idea mm -hmm. if it was gingery or gingery for the longest time until I was like, can you just tell me? I just went looking for that like two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. How well, do you it's pronounce just like it? a funny book thing. You know, I feel like there's all sorts of words, even totally outside of this, where you're like, oh, I've read this word a bunch of times and I don't actually have any idea how you say it out loud. Yeah, I know. It makes me so nervous. And especially talking about international climbers, I'm like, uh, how do I learn all these pronunciations? Luckily, my my office manager speaks French pretty well, so she Ooh, gives nice. me lots of the French pronunciations. But I've talked with German climbers to get the German pronunciations, and I'm trying to get it all right, but it's tough. You got mine right, so uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's I get a lot of mispronouncing. I hear yours all the time, so that one's not yeah. too tough. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did spell it wrong multiple times in my own writing, though. That's okay. My big thing now is that I'm often confused with Delaney Miller. You know, at oh, Climbing Magazine, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just like a weird coincidence that mm -hmm. we our names are. I mean, that's her <laughs> first name, and this is my maiden name, but like. Yeah. Point aside, names are weird, and but it's nice to try to get them right. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, you know, as someone who's like neck deep in the research uh, for this show, uh, I'm always finding like little threads I can pull on that lead me down these rabbit holes. And you know, two or three hours later, I realize I'm totally off topic now. I need to get back to my research. Were there rabbit holes you went down that ultimately weren't? included? Were there people who you couldn't really get anything for the book on? 
Yeah, it's funny. We've mentioned a couple of these people already. I would say, like, a lot of the rabbit holes I went down were fruitful, Be Vocal being the biggest one. I wrote about this a little bit for Alpinist, but, you know, like months of tracking down a physical address of her remaining family members to try to send them an actual letter in the mail. But that ended up working out. Though I feel like there's definitely some women that I wanted desperately to be included that for one reason or another, it just didn't work out. I mean, putting yourself out there like this is a big deal for some. I think, you know, there's lots of women in the book that are used to having some of the spotlight, but like someone like Mary Braun is really not. And so I think that, I mean, we spent so much time chatting and then in the end, it didn't work out to be like one story for the book. And I really kind of regret not having her included because I feel like she was someone I thought of right away as the type of person that I really want to represent in here. Um, but then I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's kind of nice to to leave some leave something for the next generation, you know, or like it's okay that some things yeah, yeah. stay undercover, you know, and yeah, maybe it's not bad <laughs> that there's like a few secrets out there still. Yeah, that actually made me pretty nervous about, you know, I mentioned that the final story of the season is about a person I'd never heard of. And Mm -hmm. for a while, I thought, wow, this person's story really needs to be told. But wouldn't it have been told already if if someone, Mm -hmm. if they wanted it told? And I've I've tried tracking them down. um, But ultimately, I did find that they have a website where they post their tick list for everyone Mm. to see. So now I feel more okay about it, even though I haven't been able to get in touch with them uh, directly. Uh, That's a challenging thing. It is challenging. And I think that part of my job in putting this book together was almost as coach sometimes. Like I really Mm. felt like there were people who felt, I got a lot of reactions that were some variation of like, I'm happy like, I'm honored that you thought of me and I'm happy to be involved, but also, are you sure that I yeah. should be in here? Like, a little bit of that, like, self-consciousness of, like, I was never a pro, I didn't do anything badass, like, are you really sure that I should be in here? Like, I felt a lot of that, I guess, imposter syndrome um, mm-hmm. from women and had to do, for some, I think, quite a bit of, like, helping them to see why it was important that their story be documented. And, and I think there is a lot of that, especially with women, especially for those that have kind of moved on from climbing somewhat that like revisiting this part of their life can be difficult or um, like, just bring up a lot of emotions. And I think for some, that's something that they're excited about. And for some, it was something that they didn't really want to go there. Some of the other women I talked to that I really wanted included had had like less than positive experiences Mm. with the media in general. Like maybe they'd been written about in other mags like in the past and didn't really like it. And so they felt kind of shy about doing this. And at the end of the day, like because it was an anthology, I needed everyone to contribute, like I needed everyone on board. And I think that was just like one of the downsides of that format, right? Because like if you're, if I had been willing to write about folks, I could have done that. But because I was so committed to having everything in the first person, mm-hmm. um, like if they weren't alive, hadn't written something, or if I couldn't get permission from them to to work on something together, then like they weren't included. Bev Johnson kind of being another big missing right. piece, which was just that I couldn't get access to her own writings and she's no longer alive. 
And so while she's mentioned in other in a bunch of stories by other women who cite her as inspiration, there's no like one story by her in this book. And and like part of that is just the the way that it works in this like format. Whereas like when in the format of your show, you kind of get to do some yeah. reporting, you know, and you don't necessarily need someone's direct input. Yeah, totally. One of the things I appreciate about the book a lot is that, um, you know, as a, as a white guy, I get to see inspiration for what I might be able to achieve all the time in climbing. You know, it's really easy for me to see. And I think that that sort of representation for other people really matters. And, you know, while there's uh, Lynn Hill and Beth Rodden that that people could look up to, a lot of people, even even white women can't look up to them in the same way that they could someone more relatable who's, you know, going out and doing weekend warrior type things. Um, so making the, the women in, or the, the, the people included in your book be more human and not all just superstar bone crushers, you know, I think was a, a really smart choice in that now lots more people can be inspired by it. Yeah, it's funny because in some ways, Lynn is clearly a huge inspiration, but it's almost yeah. like she's so, she's such a big figure in climbing that I don't know that she's that relatable. Like, I don't know how many people go, oh, she did that. I could do that. You're like, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Katie Brown early in the season called her otherworldly mm -hmm. and said, I never got over that. Like, she's, she's just an otherworldly climber to me. Yeah, totally. And so I think it's kind of nice to have that full range of experiences represented in there because, um, and like climbs in the book, you know, and I mean, I also felt like there was, I chose to not, uh, I thought a lot about which Lynn Hill story to put in the book, mm. because obviously there's a million things to choose yeah. from. <laughs> yeah. And in the end, I didn't choose one about the nose because I felt like if, if you know one thing, about yeah. women's climbing history in Yosemite. It's about the nose. And so yeah. we instead chose to choose a story of Lynn climbing on the shield with Mari. And um, and for me, I felt like that was more relatable. Like something about the story is more relatable. Like they're scared. They're aid climbing. Like it kind of sucks, you know? Like, mm -hmm. yes, it was, a it was a really big deal at the time, but it's a route that is pretty attainable um, for a, a budding wall climber. And I felt like it's something where you could look at it and be like, oh, I didn't really know that I could just go up there. And I feel yeah. like Lynn's ascent of the nose is obviously the re I mean, the reason that you're doing all these episodes about it is because of what a big deal it was yeah. in climbing. But something about some of these other stories I feel like is maybe more relatable or just like shows you a different side to, to who she is as a climber. Yeah, I agree completely with that like it's uh, it, the shield leaves more room for different levels of climber to to go up there or to dream about it or to you know to to want to do that whereas the nose was more like when this was done it was the biggest deal in climbing history period and there was no one who could repeat it for a long time you know, and it's still only the best of the best who go up there and try the thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really great. Um, you know, Lynn is this like 
extraordinary talent that I think is required in a lot of ways to sort of punch through, you know, the same way that baseball had a Jackie Robinson uh, that could punch through that barrier. I think there there is someone of that extraordinary talent required in a lot of ways to to make everyone else notice. Um, so I do I do appreciate that about what she did, whether that's what she was trying to do or not. Um, she did lead that charge, and uh, you know, I'm curious. What do you find most impressive about Lynn? Having you know, you you made the decision to put the shield um, essay in there as opposed to some of the more impressive ascents. But what is it about Lynn herself that that you think, having seen all these stories from the women in Yosemite, is the most impressive part? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and and I think one of the reasons that I was so inspired by the Shield story and decided to use it was how impressive it is to me, like the the breadth of Lynn's climbing prowess. You know, mm. like when I I was really impressed in general with all the women of this generation over how like being a climber meant doing all types of climbing. There was no like I'm a boulderer, I'm a sport climber, I'm yeah. a aid climber, like. Climbing was climbing. Like most of the climbers of Lynn's generation, like you did all forms of it. You know, they were going to going abroad and sport climbing and then coming back and putting up big wall routes and and bouldering. I mean, to think of Lynn on both the shield, the nose free, midnight lightning, you know, mm-hmm. all of this hard stuff. It's like, wow, to be to be that good across so many disciplines. Like today, I feel like we have so much delineation and so much like specialization in climbing, which obviously like, you know, athletically makes a lot of sense, but I think it's really impressive when you start thinking of like the, the whole picture of things that Lynn accomplished from like, I mean, the shield is something that's fairly attainable for climbers today, but at the time it was damn hard and Mm -hmm. super scary. And they didn't have a lot of the equipment that makes climbing the shield. I'm going to say moderate, but like somewhat moderate today, you know? And like to think about climbing A4, A5 and 514 and V8, like I don't yeah. like not that many people do that then or now. And I think that's something like worth thinking about when you think about the nose too, is that like kind of at the same time that she was doing that, she could also was also a really strong boulderer and mm-hmm. a like great aid climber. And that those things kind of came together in this nose ascent. But like, I don't think that would have been possible without that generalization, that like excitement about climbing across all disciplines. Yeah. I also think that like the time in which she was doing it is ridiculously impressive because <laughs> it was a, it was an era that was really dominated by strong male personalities, you know, um, and to, to just roll up in Europe where some dude is like, no woman will ever on-site 13B, no woman will ever climb 514, and to just do it in their faces, and then to eventually come back to Yosemite and say, look, I know you guys have tried this, but uh, step aside. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that is equally impressive and just adds to to what you're talking about, that she could not only do it all, but she could do it when there were lots of loud voices saying you can't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that ability to to face people 
frequently, you know, who wanted to detract from your accomplishments and make excuses mm -hmm. for them and, and dismiss things that you'd done. I feel like in order to keep going and to stay psyched and, um, to be able to, to succeed despite all of that, I think, um, yeah, is something that's really impressive. Yeah. I, I I'm curious. I don't know if this happens in the Valley. It's happened to me. Um, and I've done it. Like I've been the person who said it so many times that Lynn's name sort of gets invoked as this reason that we can't use excuses anymore, especially the like, it's too reachy or I'm too short excuse. I'm curious in the Valley, was that even more prevalent or was Lynn just on such a level that she couldn't be used in that way? Yeah, it's an interesting example. Um, I feel like, I don't know if it was more prevalent in the Valley, but I mean, being, being in El Cat Meadow and staring up at it every day, it definitely makes it feel even more mm. prevalent. Um, but on the flip side, I feel like I often heard in Yosemite and elsewhere, kind of like some dismissal of the nose free ascent because of like this Lynn uh, small hands thing. Small fingers. And yeah. then like, oh, well, of course you'd have to have really small hands to do it. And I'm like, this is the same sort of shit that women True. get day in and day out in places like Indian Creek, you know, for like, oh, you can only climb 511 in the creek because, you know, you hand jam reds. And like, mm -hmm. if I could do that, then I'd be climbing so much. You know, like, I feel like more than anything, I feel like it's almost the opposite. Like you look at the great roof, um, like there's people who feel threatened by like Lynn's success. And it's really easy then to like use these body differences as like a way to dismiss some of her accomplishments. And I feel like women of all levels hear this. They climb their first 511 Indian Creek, boom, someone's right there to tell them that it doesn't really count, yep. you know? And I think that it's like a, there was an ego thing that happened around Lynn's ascent totally. and it would, became really easy for some folks who felt threatened by that to like use her smaller frame and smaller hands to like pff, immediately like dismiss it. Yeah. And so I think even more than this reachy thing, I feel like what I hear more, and it's not like I hear this all the time. Like, I think this isn't actually that prevalent. I think that people have kind most people today have kind of lot let go of this idea that it was only possible because she had really small yeah. hands, but it's yep. definitely a thing that I feel like is still out there and that a lot of women hear, whether it's like, oh, you're, you're more flexible, you know, or you can get your foot up higher or you're shorter. So all of a sudden, like, you know, these scrunchy moves are easier for you because right. actually it's harder to climb with more ape index. Like no matter what you do, like, <laughs> you know, like there's someone out there uh, like not letting women just yeah. like succeed at things. And so it's like, you know, this isn't everyone, but it's definitely still out there. And I feel like you still hear it. Um, totally. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, I hadn't, I hadn't connected those two things. Like the, uh, I complain about it being reachy and somebody's like, well, Lynn Hill onsided it mm -hmm. with the, well, Lynn could only do it because she had small fingers thing. Uh, mm -hmm. I hadn't connected those at all. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And it's especially interesting that it's all rolled into this one person, like our, our preconceptions about what women are supposed to be able to do versus what they're doing. And we can't separate our own egos from it. Even when we try to, in one way, we can't mm -hmm. in the other. That's fascinating. Totally, totally fascinating. Um, in my opinion, and and I think a lot of people would argue this. I've seen people argue it. 
but I think Lynn's ascent of the nose is probably the most important ascent and climbing for the 1990s. Um, just as a whole, you know, for the, for some of the reasons you've already brought up, like she brought so many skills into this one thing and, and into the place that was like the, the, the holy ground of climbing for the previous decades. Um, and, and because she was a woman doing it right there, this thing that men couldn't do and hadn't been able to do. Um, so, so much of that comes together to make it the most important ascent, in my opinion. Um, but as a woman who spent a lot of time in the Valley, I'm curious what you think Lynn ultimately means to climbing to Yosemite history, to climbing history in general. Yeah. I mean, oof. I know that's a giant question. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's impossible to overstate how important Lynn Hill is to climbing and to climbing in the Valley. And I think to women's ability to, to think bigger. And I think that mm. her ascent and then following it up with a one day free ascent really like it's, I mean, from just a climbing perspective, I think it really solidified like that these Euro sport climbing techniques were important, right? Like Lynn was mm -hmm. super strong because she embraced change. She embraced yep. the evolution of climbing. She wasn't afraid to try new styles, disciplines, travel, learn from other people, and then bring those things home in a time when a lot of people were like sitting around huffing and puffing about how they didn't want climbing to change. Like she was out there um, learning new things, getting stronger, embracing you know, she saw the way that climbing was going and got on board right away. And like, she was there for it, you know, like she was able mm -hmm. to do it because she embraced that change. And, and then I think was able to like, boom, put that stamp on it for like ushering in a whole new generation. Like, yeah, the Salafé had been free climbed already, but like once those two things happened within a couple of years, it's like roots start, start falling, like bam, free ascent, yeah. new free ascent, new free ascent. And it's like, in the grand scheme of things, it was not that long before all this happened that climbers didn't think that climbing El Cap was possible, not free, right. but like by any means. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it really shows how important it is that like once someone opens up that door of possibility into a different way of thinking, a different way of looking at climbing, then all of a sudden other people start looking too. like, oh, maybe those holds are, aren't as small as it seems, you know, or like maybe I could protect those features. Like, what would it be like to, to face climb over there next to that seam? Like, well, we've just been so focused on, you know, these roots as aid climbs and like, maybe I can, maybe I should go explore up there and, and try out those moves. And, you know, like, it's interesting that in, you know, the Salafé and the nose are not the easiest free climbs on El Cap. It didn't go from like the most accessible to harder routes. Like it happened because those were the prime lines. That's where climbers were looking. Right. And so you can tell that there was some sort of paradigm shift because after those things happened, then we find the free rider variation. You know, then we find all these other variations that free climbs that, I mean, of course are still super hard, but not nearly as hard as free climbing the nose. And so I feel like all of that is kind of proof just for the world of climbing that like a new generation had arrived. Like it was about free climbing and we were taking free climbing to the big walls. But then for women, I feel like it's still just one of those things to like, you know, I, while I didn't include Lynn's story about the nose as her story in my book, like 
the quote at the beginning of the book is still, it yeah. goes, boys. And I feel like nothing rings more in the ears of women in the valley than this idea that like, yeah, maybe I can do it. Or if I can't, it's not because I'm a woman. Mm. You know, I'm, I'll never be as strong as Lynn, but at least I know that it's not because like because of my gender, you know? Yeah. Um, it, maybe she's not super relatable because she's such an incredible climber, but at least it kind of takes the gender thing off the table. I feel like in the minds of women in terms of like what they're able to do. And this was only a few generations after like women weren't even really allowed to lead, you know, explicitly because of their gender. And so what it does is, yeah, maybe it doesn't make me think that I'll free climb the nose someday because I definitely will not. (laughs) But like what it does do is make me think that like, at least that's not the reason, right? Like at least now I know that like gender has nothing to do with it. And that someone whose body is similar to mine can go up there and like do incredible things. Um, obviously it takes more than like finger size <laughs> to climb the nose free, but like at least it changes this one thing, totally. this idea that like maybe women can't do it and like changes the way we think about it. I love that. I love it. I've been like forming this mental picture throughout this season. Um, in the very first episode, uh, talking about Lynn, uh, I bring up the great debate that happened in the late '80s between the like the the up and coming sport climbing scene and the old traditionalists, and they were debating mostly hang dogging. Um, mm-hmm. Rappel bolting was in there too, but hang dogging was sort of the main thing on the table. And, you know, I positioned Lynn as kind of right in between these two sides in the episode, but, but I didn't know that Lynn actually was physically sitting in the middle of this whole panel. Mm. Um, I read that later and now I have this image in my head of like a painting, like the last supper, but with (laughs) Lynn, Lynn sitting in the middle of all these like crusty tratties on one side and all these people in Lycra on the other. (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> an amazing and, image. And eventually Lynn stands up and just steps out in front of all of them like, you're all being idiots, you know? It's it's all fine. Let's just do all of it. Mm-hmm. And and she becomes who she is, you know? And we we've said multiple times here that Lynn may not be relatable because of how good she is, but I, I've been doing climbing festivals for uh, 25 years at this point and I've seen Lynn at so many events uh, and watched her with climbers who were just like wide eyed that they're getting to talk to Lynn Hill. And she's so normal when Mm -hmm. she's doing that. It's, it's one of the coolest things about her. I think is that she's just a normal person and you would have no clue. And in fact, I'm going to get in trouble for telling this story, but I have to do it really quick. Um, my friend Paul, who's one of the coaches at Power Company, told me that he was at a crag with a friend and there was a woman climbing next to them. And the guy asked the woman if she wanted beta and it was Lynn Hill. <laughs> and he had no idea that it was Lynn Hill. <laughs> That's amazing. She obviously didn't need his beta, but I think it's you know, kind of indicative of why Lynn Hill's important. And to say that Lynn's not relatable, I don't mean that she's not like inspirational. I yeah, think it's totally. more just that like, no, I don't think most people go like, oh, she free climbed the nose. I can free climb the nose. It's more like 
she went up there, I can go up there, you know? Yeah. And that idea that like you have something to aspire to, that like someone like you has gone to the greatest depth of the sport. I feel like that's the inspirational, relatable thing. It's like not that I'm going to reach the same heights that she did, but it's that like, well, maybe if I really tried, you know, or at least I know that um, I'm not going to be held back because of certain inalienable like traits about me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the thing that is so inspirational. And that's like the mark that, I mean, like that's why people are still talking about the nose and still talking about yeah. Lynn Hill and how important this was. And like this was happening well before this whole new generation of climbers ever like was born or <laughs> mm-hmm. like started training in gyms from when they were like toddlers, you know, like yeah. none of that existed when Lynn free climbed the nose. And yeah, it's just, it's one of those things that changed the game. And I think for both men and women, like let everyone know that that we could look at these walls in a different way. Mm. Yeah, so important. Well, Lauren, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, I can't imagine anybody more qualified to talk <laughs> uh, about the the women in Yosemite and what Lynn means to that and who the other badasses were. And I hope that someday we get a book with more of your voice as well. Because <laughs> I think your perspective is really important and I'd love to hear more of it. So thanks for your book. Thanks for the work you do putting out stories with duct taped and beer. Um, I appreciate all of that. And thanks for taking the time today. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. This has been really awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored. All right, Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. The link in your show notes, you find all the things you expect, probably some you don't, including links where you can find Valley of Giants, stories from women at the heart of Yosemite climbing, as well as how you can connect with Lauren online. You should absolutely get this book. You should absolutely read it. Buy it for your daughters, your sisters, your mom, and for yourself, of course. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts. But like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And seriously, if you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review. The algorithm loves it, which means more people find it, which means sponsors will love it, which means we can make a season two. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents, one decade at a time. Secret Stoners, welcome to another club meeting. Glad you all are here. Uh, Wow, isn't Lauren the coolest? Um, I feel like I just want to talk to her all the time about women in Yosemite history. Uh, If you don't have her book, definitely check it out. We're also going to be doing a giveaway with her book. I talked with Mountaineer's Books just the other day. We're going to give away her book. 
as well as uh, one of the books that I've been using as a resource this whole season that frankly is one of the the nicest um, books about climbing in the 90s that I've ever seen. It's pretty incredible, really. Um, I lucked across it at Wild Iris Mountain Sports here in Lander, and I bought it, and someone else should have a copy of it. Uh, if I could give away 100 copies, I would. Um, but we're going to be giving those away, as well as the tension blocks, the written in stone, make history tension blocks that I posted in the Patreon in the Secret Stoners Club. We're going to be giving away a bunch of those very soon as well. Some just for you all, for the patrons. So be on the lookout. Uh, big shout out to our newest legend. Yasmin is one of my oldest friends, one of my oldest climbing partners. Thanks for the support, Yaz. It means everything. I just looked in the Patreon uh, at the poll for which decade are we covering next, and the 80s are pulling further ahead, 54% to 40%. So you guys know what to do. Uh, I, you know what? I'm beginning to wonder if you kids who want the 2000s even know how to use the internet. I don't know if you do. I'm not convinced. Uh, us, us older dinosaurs might know more than you think. Okay. I've had a big week over here. I finished narrating the giant episode that I was stuck on before. Uh, it's going to be amazing, epic. It's huge. I can't wait for you to hear it in just a few weeks. But uh, coming up next is a bonus episode that you'll get in just a couple of days. It'll be on the Secret Stoners Club feed, which again, uh, you all can listen to in Patreon or on Spotify. And if you're a Legend member, you can find your own RSS feed to punch into any of your podcast apps and you should be able to listen to the Secret Stoners Club anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, and that episode is going to be with Nina Caprez. And uh, it's, a, it's a conversation I recorded for the Power Company podcast when I was working on a remix episode about failure, but I've never put the episode out there in public before. I've never put this conversation out there in public before, just little snippets of it for that remix episode. So that is coming to you in just a couple of days. And then next week, uh, the biggest controversy in climbing in the 1990s. Uh, I went into this story thinking I believed one thing and I came out on the other side believing another. And I think maybe you will too, though maybe you won't. Maybe you'll totally disagree and you'll be like, wow, you're off your rocker, dude. And if you want to tell me that, that's totally fine. I stand by my episode next week. All right. I will see you guys. You know what? I don't know if I'll see you after the Nina Caprez episode because uh, that only goes to you guys. Do I talk at the end of Secret Stoner Club conversations? I don't know yet. That seems weird. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how I feel uh, come Tuesday night. Um, but I will certainly be talking to you after the episode next week because it's a great one. All right. Talk to you guys soon.